Good morning, church. I want to begin by telling you a story, uh, one of the most powerful stories I know of, where God's light really does outshine the darkness of our world. But I, I need to warn you, it's a really difficult story to hear, especially at the very beginning. The date was October 2nd, 2006. The, the place was a small town in Pennsylvania called Nickel Mines. And there was this one-room schoolhouse in an Amish community. And there were 10 Amish girls gathered together there, all of them ages 6 to 13. And in the middle of their school day, a man who had lost his mind named Carl Roberts rushed into that schoolhouse and took them hostage. And by the time it was all over, he had taken the lives of five of those girls and his own. As soon as the, the story got out, the, the national media rushed to this small town and surrounded this even smaller Amish community. And everybody wanted to know, how were they going to respond? What were they going to do in the face of this horrific tragedy? And, and part of it was just plain curiosity on the part of so many of the reporters and all of the people who gathered together. Because while we might not know a whole lot about the Amish, if we know anything about the Amish, we know that they're different from the rest of us. We, we know that they have made decisions to, to separate themselves from, from so much of the world, and especially to resist modern technology so that they could have a different kind of, of simpler life. And every time I see images of, of them in their plain handmade black clothes, riding down the side of the road in their horse and buggy, it seems like the world really has passed them by, but not on October 2nd, 2006. The world wasn't passing the Amish by. The whole world was stopped in its tracks, wanting to witness to see what was going to happen next, because everybody had this deep sense that this had to be the worst nightmare uh, for, the, for the Amish community to have to face. Not just the loss of life, but the way it happened. They, they had taken great steps to try to distance themselves, to insulate themselves, to protect themselves from the outside world and dangers of the outside world. And here this, this insane man, Carl Roberts, had dragged that danger right into their midst. He dragged it right into the middle of, the, of this little schoolhouse that belonged to their children. How do you respond to that? What do you do? That's what everybody wanted to know. And what happened next, what those Amish men and women did, was so shocking, was so unexpected, that suddenly everybody knew that they weren't just a little different from the rest of the world. They were almost unbelievably different from the rest of the world. Just hours after the, the shooting, this community of Amish men and women and children made the intentional choice to go over to the home of the family of Carl Roberts, his wife and his children, and, and to minister to them, to, to extend the unconditional love of God to them. And they, they found a way to connect with Carl Roberts' wife and his children through their shared mutual grief. And they talked about the reality that they knew that on the one hand, this family was having to bear up under unspeakable humiliation and shame because of what he had done. And yet on the other hand, they were, they were mourning the loss of a father and a husband who they dearly loved. And just six days after that, that meeting, that moment, this Amish community chose to attend together the funeral 
for the man who murdered their children. And and some of them had actually buried their daughters just a day before. And and as you can imagine, there there was not just the the news media, but the, the entire surrounding community was watching this unfold. And there were many people in many different interviews that basically said that they hoped that Carl Roberts was burning in hell for what he had done. And that that got around enough that, that that Amish community wanted to respond to that. And they said, we, we believe as broken as this man was, he was created by God and he had a soul. And that in the end, he met not only a just God, but a merciful God. Can you imagine saying those kinds of words in that kind of difficult moment in your life? That's exactly what this community did. In the following days, there were all kinds of people who praised the Amish for this astounding act of forgiveness. And as you might imagine, there were other people who criticized them for what they had done. They denounced this act of grace, saying it was too weak. It was a symbolic slap on the wrist for murder. It was too fast. It was emotionally unhealthy. It was socially irresponsible in the face of this kind of evil. Someone, people felt, needed to pay for Carl's sins. But the only people left to punish was his family members. And this Amish community would not do it. With all of the, the questions and the doubts swirling around in the air, one thing was for certain. People already knew that they lived in a world where horrible things happened to innocent people, but precious few would have believed that they were already living in a world where parents of murdered children would choose to band together to forgive the family of the man who murdered them. And not only to forgive the family, but somehow to forgive his memory. When Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us as we forgive those who sin against us. I'm convinced, brothers and sisters, he's asking us not only to pray, but to believe that we live in a world where mercy and grace really are possible. And and not just possible for some special superhuman group of Christians, but possible for us. He wants us to believe that we can belong to a community, that we can be a part of a community that extends the same unconditional love to others that Jesus faithfully extends to us. At its heart, the gospel story is about forgiveness. And that means that forgiveness must be at the heart of the gospel community. Forgiveness must be at the heart of the church. In my estimation, this phrase, this prayer request at this point in Jesus' model prayer, it's it's the most difficult phrase in, in the entire thing for us to say and mean what we're saying. This idea of forgiveness being at the heart, the core of what it means to follow Jesus, it's inescapable. And and he knows that we're going to try to get through this phrase as quickly as we can onto something else. Because when it's over, if you go back to Matthew chapter 6 and verse 14, right after the prayer ends, he underscores it, he underlines it by saying, For if you forgive others when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. If you forgive, God will forgive. It's a pretty sobering thing to think about. The forgiveness we receive from God is intended, designed to create a forgiveness in us that we faithfully share with those who need it. 
if, if you and I, if we refuse to allow the mercy of God to change us, to transform us into people of mercy, if, if we try to, to refuse allowing God's grace to, to turn us into people who show grace, who share grace with those who wound us, we cut ourselves off from the life God wants for us. We close ourselves off from the love God wants to share not only with us, but through us. We're not supposed to be obsessed with or worried about some sort of conditional forgiveness where, you know, it's if, then, if I forgive, then God will forgive me. We can't get to the place where we're primarily trying to, to figure out if we can force God to forgive us by our own actions and through our own moral performance. That's just not possible. You and I, we cannot earn God's grace. You can earn it by definition. It's not grace. That's not what Jesus is trying to get at when he says, If you forgive, God will forgive. What he's really trying to get us to understand is that in our commitment to be more and more like God, we are also committing to learn to grow in his forgiving ways. And because Jesus, as the Son of God, shares the character of God, the reality is, brothers and sisters, we can't be like Christ as long as we refuse to let his, his forgiving way of life become our way of life as well. Jesus talks a lot about grace and mercy and forgiveness throughout his life and his ministry. Uh, But one of the clearest places where he really talks about what he means actually takes place later in Matthew's gospel. And and this time, instead of Matthew chapter 6, we're going to read together in Matthew 18, starting in verse 10. If your brother or sister sins against you, go and point out their mistake just between the two of you. And if they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they won't listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 70 times seven. I'll confess to you right now, forgiveness doesn't come naturally for me. I wish it did, but it doesn't. And when somebody emotionally hurts me, when they attack me, when they insult me, when they're rude to me, when they gossip about me, when, when they stab me in the back, my, my knee-jerk reaction is, is to distance myself, to, to lash out, to try to get away from the pain and, and try, to, try to avoid them, try to, to stay away from them. And if I can't stay away from them, well... You know, then I find a way to be both civil and cold to them at the same time. In other words, you know, I I try to to politely punish them. Now, I know that all sounds pretty petty, and that's because it it is. But that's the, the struggle I have. I have this internal sense of justice, this idea of fairness that leads me to the place where I kind of feel like I have the excuse to treat other people as badly as they treat me. You know, I, I, I decide if, if they've hurt me emotionally, I'm going to find a way to get even, to hurt them back. 
And this ugly shadow version of the golden rule, you know, the, the rule we, we've all heard before, treat other people the way you want to be treated. Well, you know, it's easy to slip into treating other people as badly as they're treating you. And that, that ugly shadow version of the golden rule, it's an unspoken rule that, that it many times feels a lot easier to live out. Easier, that is, if, if you're comfortable eventually getting to a place where you're really, really self-justified and really, really alone. Because if every time somebody hurts you, if, if every time somebody hurts me, my response is to, to get them back, to, to get even, it just destroys any, any way for us to have a good relationship. It, it destroys any sense of connection. And, and yet so many times, I think that's how we respond when somebody mistreats us. I... I love this quote from Christian author Philip Yancey, who says, The only thing harder than forgiving someone who has hurt us is the alternative. A world without grace. A world with scorecards and without second chances. Now you hear a description like that, and, and it's helpful that Yancey's admitting it's really hard to forgive somebody, but he's also reminding us the alternative's even harder. It's even more challenging. No, nobody wants to live in a world without grace. Nobody wants to live in a world without second chances, at least for themselves. So we go to Scripture. We look for help to figure out how we might live in a world where grace and mercy really are possible. Go to Matthew 18. And we look for advice from Jesus on what that kind of life might look like. And we find, conveniently enough, three steps, right? How are we supposed to react in church when, when somebody sins against us? Well, step one, we go to that person in private and we, we try to help them see, we, we try to help them understand how what they did hurt us, uh, caused us emotional distress and pain. We hope that they'll see that, that they'll admit it, that they'll realize that they need to make some changes and, and how our relationship is going to work, that they're going to see their part of what they need to do to repair the relationship. If that happens, Jesus says, you've won them over. If that doesn't work, you go to step two. You go back to them to talk with them again, but this time you bring someone or you bring a couple of people with you. You try to help them understand what's really happened, at least as far as you understand it, and what you believe needs to happen going forward. Maybe they'll listen to, to not just you, but the other people you bring. Jesus says if, if that doesn't work, well, then you go, to, you go to step three. You bring the issue, the, the problem, the brokenness in your relationship. You bring it to the church. And Jesus says hopefully the, the communal presence of the church family will help facilitate some healing in that relationship. And if that doesn't work, well, then you've done what you can do. Right? You've tried. Three different ways you've tried. And that means this person who simply won't listen to you, who, who can't find a way to see things uh, the way you do, who, who can't relate to what you're going through, that's, that's three strikes. And they're out. And there's a, a pretty straightforward reading of the text that I think sounds a whole lot like that. But here's the catch. This is true with all of Scripture, but it's especially true in Matthew chapter 18. And that is... That, that what we get out of Matthew chapter 18 is, is entirely determined by the kind of attitude we bring with us to Matthew 18. If we're having a problem with somebody 
And we're looking for three boxes that we can check to say, okay, I did my due diligence. Uh, I did all these things that Jesus said I had to do. And now I'm justified in giving up on this relationship. I'm justified in getting rid of this person from my life. If that's what we're looking for, we're going to find it. And we're going to reduce Jesus's God-given wisdom, the Holy Spirit-inspired wisdom that he's trying to share with us. We're going to reduce it to kind of three easy steps to reject somebody and feel like that's actually the right thing to do. However, if we come not looking so much to be right, but instead to be reconciled with the person that we have this problem with, we won't find three easy steps to to never seeing them again. Instead, we'll find three solid bridges that we can cross to be close to them again. The point of Matthew 18 isn't to tell us when it's okay for us to kick someone out of our lives, when we're justified to kick somebody out of the life of the church. The point of Matthew 18 is to tell us that there has to be a better way than parting ways. It takes dedication, it takes imagination, but there has to be at least one community on the face of the earth where the people who belong to that community decide that no matter what, they're not going to give up on each other. And it's obvious that Jesus wants the church to be that community, the community that never gives up. It's easier to see this deeper truth when we back up a little bit from just that, that middle section of Matthew 18 that we've read, and we go to the beginning of the chapter, and we find Jesus telling us this parable of the lost sheep, where it's obvious that he's wanting to say, look, God doesn't want anyone to be lost. He doesn't want to give up on a single person. And then we've got the three steps, and then Peter, having clearly heard them, knows it's not about kicking people out. It's about keeping people in by forgiving them when they make mistakes, when they mess up. And he understands that because we're imperfect, we're not just going to mess up one time. We're not, we're not just going to make a single mistake. We're going to keep struggling with mistakes. And so he asks an obvious question. How many times do we forgive people? How many times do we show mercy and grace? I mean, surely there has to be a limit. Surely there has to be a place where we say, okay, enough is enough. And Jesus' answer is to give Peter such a huge number that it's obvious that he's telling Peter and he's telling us, look, if you actually want to forgive others the way you've already been forgiven by God, you're going to lose count. So, so just quit trying to keep score and love one another no matter what. Now, I feel like I need to say that I understand that there are extremely complex situations. And and you may have one of these these experiences in your life that involve violence and, and abuse, and they require ongoing relational and physical distance from somebody who is still living and who is still dangerous. And that kind of forgiveness, that journey of figuring out what love looks like in the midst of that. It takes professional counseling and conversations with, with people who, who can really think about your specific situation. And this sermon falls far short of being able to help you with that. And if you find yourself in that place struggling, uh, email me. Send me a note. Let me know. If, if you need someone to talk to, if you need somebody who can help you work through that, we have people, counselors connected to this church who can help you do that. What I'm talking about this morning is, is not violent, physical, or sexual abuse. 
I'm, I'm talking about the typical run-of-the-mill grudge holding that most of us struggle with each and every day. And in every single one of those emotionally painful situations, if, if we'll practice the, the three steps that Jesus is offering us here in Matthew 18 as steps of reconciliation and acceptance instead of steps of alienation and rejection, I honestly don't think that when it comes to, to just grudge holding and disagreements and moments when we've insulted each other and moments when we've let each other down, I don't think it ever has to get to the point of kicking someone out of our lives. And, and even if it does get to that point, the Apostle Paul assures us in the second chapter of his second letter to the church in Corinth that, that as Christians, when we kick someone out of community, it's never supposed to be the end of the story. We have to always be trying our best to eventually find a way to bring them back, to welcome them home. The only way you and I are ever going to live with, with that kind of unwavering grace and undying forgiveness is to grasp all that we have been and will be forgiven of by God. Christian forgiveness cannot come from a sense of fairness. It has to come from a sense of gratefulness. A reporter asked one of the Amish grandmothers there in Nickel Mines after everything had happened, you know, did your community get together? Did they, did they have some kind of meeting where they decided whether or not they were going to extend forgiveness to Carl Roberts' family? She was so thrown by the question, she almost laughed, and she said, no, 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 there was no meeting to decide. Forgiveness was already a decided matter for us, decided long before October 2nd. Forgiveness was already a decided matter for us. Isn't that the truth? You know, the watching world, they, they knew, they understood that even if some people said that this decision to forgive was too fast or it was too easy, it was anything but easy. And yet it was a firm decision. And, and what's interesting in this, this woman's quote is it reveals that she didn't really feel like the decision was hers to make. It wasn't even a decision that the community got to make. It was a decision that had already been made by God in Christ on Calvary. This, this God who is able to not only, through his love and through his power, reconcile sinners to himself, but somehow also miraculously reconcile sinners to other sinners. You know, every time I think about this story, every time I'm reminded of this amazing act of grace and, and the spirit of generosity, mercy, that these Amish men and women and children displayed, it gives me more hope for the world we're living in. And it doesn't just give me more hope for the world we're living in, but it gives me more hope that, that we can, like this community of faith, who made this difficult decision, that, that we can, as, as forgiven and forgiving followers of Christ, we can show a, a broken world filled with all kinds of relationships that are in disrepair. We can show the world a better way forward than getting even. I feel like so often in our world, we, we basically interact with people who have harmed us with a sense of, of trying to figure out how to design our own mutual destruction. But Jesus says there is no future in that. The only way forward is forgiveness. And I think that's so important for us to remember, brothers and sisters, because it's often that I hear us talking about forgiveness as, as a way to get over the past. But that's, that's not what forgiveness is. It's not about getting over the past. It's about deciding to break with the darkness that's in the past. 
so that we can find the, the light of a new future together, a beautiful and unexpected future that is only available to us. It is only made possible to us because Jesus has, has taught us how to live lives of grace and mercy. It's a gift. It's not a burden. It's not a challenge. It's a gift and a blessing to be people who have lives that are not only touched by mercy and grace, but transformed by mercy and grace. And so we, we come together in this moment. We listen to the words of Jesus' prayer. We listen to, to Jesus explaining what, what kind of, of forgiveness we really can live together. And may, may we find a way to believe that his words, they don't just teach us the truth, but they can become a truth that we live. And that, and that whatever we face, we're going to face it together because whatever we go through, we will not give up. Let's sing together now.